Well, good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them up with me to the gospel according to Mark. We'll be in chapter 9, looking from verses 9 all the way through 29. Picking up where we left off last week. While you are making your way there, I do want to you know, draw attention to where I'm standing. Uh, I'm sure you noticed that we are finally back in this room. And by we, today it's me and Kyle and Noah, and they're in the back. But we're in this room, and we are getting prepared, and we are ready, I believe, to meet back here next week. And so next Sunday at 1045, we will, with precaution and with care, with mask and with a lot of hand sanitizer, we are planning on meeting in this room. And so we certainly ask that if you are uh, sick at, of, of any kind, don't come near this place, okay? If you've got a little cough, maybe you think it's your sinuses, you still stay at home, okay? But if you are well, uh, we certainly have the doors open for you to come. If you are not prepared to make that jump and come back into this facility, we totally understand. There will be a majority of you that that's the place that where you are. You'll still be on your couch next week. We have made it to where we will be able to stream live to you. And so we're not going to leave anybody behind. And so we want everybody with us. And, and whether you're at home or whether you're in this room, we certainly are prepared to move forward together. Uh, but next week, 1045, the doors will be open. And so we'll, we'll probably open them up certainly earlier in that. Look for, uh, as far as when you can arrive, look for updates this week, emails, text messages, all that kind of stuff. We will walk you through what that's going to look like. But I'm excited that we're back in here today. It is a little awkward for me to, to speak to an almost empty room. But I am so thankful to be in a place where I have spent much of my life. And so being back behind this podium is certainly a grace to me today. But if you will, look with me there at the text, Mark chapter 9. We are going to pick up right where we left off last week. And what I want to do is, if you were not with us, I want to encourage you, one, to go back and listen to that message. But two, I can just give you a very quick recap. And so the recap goes like this. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up onto a mountain. We're not confident which mountain they went on, but they go onto a mountaintop, and Jesus, as he is praying, he is transformed. He's transfigured. It's the text that we call the transfiguration. And it's as this happens that the disciples, Peter, James, and John, see Jesus conversing with two Old Testament heroes. And so, like, like I said last week, like these are... Two people that, that James, John, and Peter would have had posters on their wall growing up. Okay, this is Moses and Elijah, and Jesus is having a conversation with these guys. And as Peter's trying to figure out what all he needs to do and how they can serve these three, a cloud comes over. The very, this is the presence of God comes over them and envelops them. And there is the voice of the Father that speaks not only over the Son, but also over the disciples as well, and says, this is my beloved Son. Listen to him. And the word said there in verse 8, it says, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. There's so much that we said about that last week, but for our time today, just understand, we ended our message last week with the encouragement and with the need to look and listen to Jesus, to behold and believe 
Christ, to see him and submit to his word, his works, and his ways. And that's what we looked at last week. And today, we're going to begin our message and really see a theme from verses 9 all the way through 29 of the difficulty to behold and believe, or the difficulty to look and listen to Christ. And so, I want to talk about this difficulty. We'll call it a struggle, a difficulty, a tension. There, there's so many different ways that we can word it. But the, the phrase, the, the tension, is what has really resonated with me this week. And so I want you to consider this and, and see if it connects with you. The tension between what we understand and what we expect and the glory that we await. And so the tension that exists between what we understand and what we're expecting God to do and then the glory that we await for him to bring. Or the tension between what we are currently seeing with our eyes, what we're currently experiencing in our life and the hope of what we know will be. This is a tension that we all can understand. I wanna show you in each of the characters in the story I want you to see how this tension takes place in their life. And so the first grouping of people here, let's just consider the, the three with Jesus. So Peter, James, and John as they're coming down the mountain. And so they've been on this literal mountaintop experience. And so I don't know if that's where the phrase came from, but they're on a mountaintop experience with Jesus and he leads them down the mountain. And as they come down the mountain, they are having a conversation with Christ. And so verse nine, it says, and as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the son of man had risen from the dead. I'm not gonna take a whole lot of time on verses nine through 13, but I do wanna encourage you to study them, especially in your own time. But I will say several things about it. First, we, we see that Jesus is going to, once again, call for silence. And this is the last time he's gonna do that in the gospel of Mark. And so he's gonna tell them, you know, don't tell anybody what you just saw. Now think about what they just saw on the mountain. And he says, don't talk about it with anybody. Well, that's, that seems absurd. But this time he gives them, you know, a, a ending date to their silence. He says, and this is the only time he does this. He says, tell no one what you've seen until the son of man has risen from the dead. And so until the resurrection, Now, what we need to understand about the disciples is what they could not have understood. There's no room in their gospel imagination for what resurrecting would mean for Christ. Like, there's just no way. Like, they would have had in their brains the capacity to understand that in the last days, you know, when when God would return and he would uh, bring all rights to injustice and he would lift up and raise up the people of Israel. In that day, yes, they were awaiting a resurrection, a community resurrection of the people of God. But they had no room in their gospel imagination for an individual resurrection. And I think we have to consider this because even for the non-believers, you know, that may be, like, even if you're not a Christian today and you're listening to this message, you're very aware of, more than likely, of the Bible's teaching of Jesus Christ's resurrected body. Like, you know the claims of the Christian faith that Jesus was resurrected in bodily form. Like, you know this. But they didn't. They had no way of knowing this at that time. And so Jesus is walking through and he says, hey, do not tell anyone what you just saw 
until after the Son of Man has risen from the dead. And so verse 10 tells us that they kept the matter to themselves, which is pretty impressive, but they questioned what this might, what this rising from the dead might mean. And so they talked within that little community, the community of three there. They discussed it, but they didn't tell anyone else. Verse 11, they asked Jesus, they said, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And this is probably a question you know, a little bit of defiance, actually. It's, it's in a sense a questioning of like, are you sure about this, Jesus? Because what they're doing is they're referring to, when he says something about the resurrection, they're automatically making a connection to the last days. And what Malachi chapter four tells us, if you wanna uh, turn there, you know, in your time, the very last part of the Old Testament, the very last, para- last paragraph says that the prophet Elijah will come. And when the prophet Elijah comes, it's in the last days. And it's, he's the forerunner of the restoration of Israel. And so when they hear him talking about resurrection, they automatically go back to this scene that was on the mountain. And they say, okay, Elijah faded away, but isn't he supposed to come? Like when he comes, doesn't he bring the restoration of all things? And what Jesus says to them is he says, Elijah does come to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased as it was written of him. The book of Matthew tells us that the disciples were able to put this together, that they understood that Jesus was referring to Elijah being John the Baptist. And so what happens is Jesus, in a sense, twists this conversation back on them or turns it on their head. And so when they ask a question, they're saying, hey, doesn't, you know, the scribes tell us that Elijah is gonna come first. Well, Jesus says he already has come and he suffered and he died just like I'm about to suffer and die. Like you're not gonna get out of suffering and dying, you know, as the way to glory. That's what he's telling them. Like suffering and, you know, my personal being rejected and suffering and dying is the way that I will make it to the glory that you have witnessed. You got a preview of the resurrected glory of Christ. That is only going to come through rejection and suffering. It happened to Elijah, who is John the Baptist in this situation. It happened to John the Baptist and it's going to happen to me. And then if you'll remember just a couple weeks ago, he walked through it. Hey, and it's also gonna happen with you guys. But these disciples, man, these three, they're having a struggle, you know, with what they, you know, with the tension between what they understand and what they're expecting and what they, what they know will come in the glory of Christ. And they're having a hard time between what they're experiencing in their life and what they know will one day be. And so we see that struggle there with the three. We also see the struggle when they get down into the valley. And so they've come from the top of the mountain. They've entered into the valley. And when they get there, I, my outline, I've got it like this. We see the struggle to behold and believe with the hard heads and the hard hearts in the valley. And so look at what happens there. Verse 14, it says, And when they came to the disciples, so this is the three in Jesus. They make it to the other disciples. They saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, he said, what are you arguing about? Like, what is going on? 
Some people believe that this is picturing what we saw in Exodus when Moses has been on the mount with the Lord and he comes down the mount to find the people and Aaron worshiping the golden calf. I don't know if we necessarily see that here in the text, but, but we definitely see Jesus coming, the greater Moses, you know, coming down the mountain to just some massive, to a massive amount of chaos and dysfunction and just arguing. The disciples and the religious leaders of the day arguing once again. And we see they just have such a struggle to get it, such a struggle to understand and it's not just the disciples. In fact, here, maybe more than the disciples, man, it's this, it's this group of religious leaders. But we also know by the context of what we're going to study today that it was also like a lack of faith from the disciples. Like, like they, they were missing the point. And they're arguing. <clears throat> we see the struggle to believe not only with Peter, James, and John, not only with the rest of the disciples and just the hard-hearted religious leaders of the day, but we also see it with the desperate and the frail faith of a dad, of a father of a suffering son. And so I want you to look with me at verse 17. You know, Jesus has just asked, like he's speaking probably to the religious leaders about the disciples, but saying, what are you arguing about with them? Like, what is going on? And as he asked this, someone from the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Man, what a vulnerable place this little boy is in. And what a vulnerable place this father's in. He's desperate, and he's come looking for hope. And all he is finding at this moment is in arguing people. As a side note, may the desperate world... May those who are looking for hope and love and grace and expecting Christ, when they come to the church, may they not find an arguing, faithless people. That, that's what this dad has found when he takes his boy to the disciples. And now his faith is just shook because he had this hope. He heard the disciples were near, and so he went to them. He thought he would see Jesus, and when he saw Jesus' disciples, he says, okay, hope is still near, and he went to them, and they were unable to heal his son, and he was desperate. Jesus, in the face of this desperation, he speaks, I think, a bigger word. It, it is about the disciples, I believe, because of something that Matthew says. Matthew calls out their lack of faith, but I also believe he's speaking over the disciples to the religious leaders of the day and just the people that are there. And he said, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Jesus says to the father and he says to the crowd, he says, bring him to me. And it says that they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Like this was the thing that the father was describing to Jesus that would happen to his son. And now it's happening before the eyes of all who were there. And it's just such a sad scene. And you know it must have felt so intense. Like I can, I can place myself there to an extent. And I can just imagine how quiet it must have gotten. 
you know, and how intense of a scene it must have been. And yet Jesus calmly asks a question in the middle of this boy's suffering. He looks to the father and he says, how long has this been happening to him? It's almost like the words, it's like the words of a doctor. You know, Jesus, the great physician, he speaks into the father's life a question. How long has this been happening? And he said from childhood, and just hear his voice ramping up here. Like he's not saying this, you know, necessarily in a patient tone. He, he from childhood, and he's often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Have pity on us. That's what he's crying out. And he's begging Jesus to do something. And he says, if you can do something, please do it now. Have compassion on us and help us. It must have been so quiet around there except for the, the loud, weepy voice of this vulnerable father. This one who has a mustard seed of faith. He has a frail faith, but it's a true faith. And he speaks to Jesus. If you can do anything, have compassion. Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. It's once again, we hear the words of Christ that speaks over us, that what's impossible with man, it's possible in and with Christ. And he says that all things are possible, not just in Christ, but he says for the one who believes. This father, you can imagine the tension here. He's given all he's got. Like he's begging, he's pleading, he's crying, he's crying out. And, and he says, immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. This one phrase has been as near to my heart and my walk with Jesus over the last decade than any other. This in John 6 with a, with a Peter, you know, a, a just, you know, almost an aggressive personality, you know, when, he's, when Jesus says, hey, are you gonna leave? Are you guys gonna go away like the rest of the people? And Peter says, where else can we go? Where else can we cling? You're the one that has life. And here this father is saying, I believe. I'm doing everything I know to believe. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. Meet me in my unbelief. And my friends, Jesus does. He does. He meets us in our unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd had came running up together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and he said to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26 says, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he is dead. It is actually very possible that this scene has the boy dying, that he actually died. In, in the context of the disciples trying to understand what resurrection means, it's very possible that he literally dies here. But Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and the boy arose. Matthew tells us he was immediately healed. And when he had entered the house, this is after the scene, his disciples come up to him privately, as has happened often in Mark. And they say, why couldn't we heal the boy? Why couldn't we cast out the demon? 
And Jesus said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. This is an amazing story. It's an incredible story. It's loaded. And there's so much that we could have a conversation about within it. There's so much to learn and take from it. But I could not miss, as I studied this week, the tension that was there. In fact, the phrase that I was talking about, I believe, but help my unbelief, that's just has so much tension just in that one statement. Think about it. And it helps connect, I believe, us into the work of Christ, not only for us, but the work of Christ in the world around us. What I want you to see is not only the struggle that we see in, in, the, in the text and to feel that tension, but I also want you to see and grasp hold of as much as we can the restoring hope of the gospel. <clears throat> what we see here is not only a Christ who is the God of the mountain, the God of glory, but we see Christ who's the God of the valley. He's the God who suffers. He's the God who comes to save and to restore. We see the hope of this in just the gospel of Christ. It's in the hope of restoration and the hope of healing. It's the hope of Christ coming and him coming again. Here in this passage, I, I can't miss the image of Christ on the mountain, Christ in glory, leaving that scene to come down into the valley of chaos and suffering and pain. He comes into the valley of dysfunction and disorder. Like he comes into it. That's what we have in the gospel of Jesus. This morning, I want you to be reminded as we study this text that the God of the mountain is also the God of the valley. The God of the mountain is also the God of your valleys. He meets us there. We understand as we study the gospel of Mark, and we're gonna continue to have Jesus teaching us this over and over again, that the hope of Christ, uh, you know, coming, the hope of the glory of Jesus will only come and has only come through his suffering. That's the way that glory would come. It, co it came through suffering. The hope found in Christ who is both the son of man and the man of sorrows. Now you probably didn't catch that in the text, but up in verse 13, or 12 and 13, he refers to himself as the son of man, but that, that would be treated, or that would suffer, sorry, that would suffer many things and be treated with contempt. When we see that language there, he's quoting from or referring back to Isaiah 53, the passage of the suffering servant, the one known as being rejected. He was a man of sorrows. The, the son of man, Daniel 7 gives us this picture of the one coming in glory. The glorious one is also the one that would be rejected and suffer and die. He's also the man of sorrows. Jesus has been teaching his disciples this, and he will continue to teach them. But this story that comes after actually helps to illustrate it. He leaves the mountain of glory. He comes into the valley of suffering to do what? To heal and to restore. We see the hope of the gospel in this text. We're reminded that the cross will come before the crown, that suffering will come before the glory, that death must come before resurrection. 
That's what we see here in this passage. And so when you find yourself in the tension and the struggle to believe, when you find yourself in the fight for faith in Christ, remember him. Fix your eyes on him, the one who left the mountain to enter the valley. And so not only do we see just this tension or the struggle to believe, but we're reminded or pointed to the hope of glory, the hope of the gospel, the restoring hope of Jesus. But I also see, and I, it's, it's within what we just mentioned, but I wanna talk about it specifically. We see the healing presence of Christ. I want you to notice Christ's presence here in this passage. We see him, he enters into the valley, he enters into the shadow, and look at his posture. He is with his disciples. He's with the people. He's with those who are in the midst of arguing and sinning and unbelief. Like he's with them. He enters into their world, okay? He is being with his disciples. But he's not only with them, he also bears with them. I think the phrase is interesting. He says, how long am I going to be with you? How long am I going to bear with you? It's really interesting. Not only is Christ you know, seen as being present with his people, he also bears with his people. He bears with us. He's patient with us. He's kind with us. He's gracious and merciful to his people. He's gracious and merciful here in this text and in this story. He bears with them. He's also, you know, he enters in, he is with them, but he also bears with them. And then we know in the hope of glory, we know in the gospel, we know that also he takes on the burden of the people. So it's not only that he bears with them or the bearing with the people, but also the bearing of their sin, the bearing of all evil and suffering, and pain. We know that not only is he patient with us and kind with us, but he loves us. He, he takes on what is crushing and oppressive to us. He takes it on himself, ultimately on the cross. He comes to save us. I do want to move a step further, but before we do, I want us to take a moment for personal application here when we're talking about the presence of Christ and him coming in, him entering into the valley, him bearing with the people, and even the greater truth of him bearing for the people their sin. I want you to think about the call that Christ has placed upon us, his people. What it means to follow Jesus into the world that he loves. What it means to follow him in the work of redemption and the work of reconciliation and renewal. As Christ enters the valley, so do we, his church. As Christ enters in, we are called to as well. With grace and in faith, we follow Christ into the chaos. We follow him into the disorder of this world. In his power to face evil, knowing What? That he's defeated it. He's defeated it on the cross, and one day he will finally destroy it. See, in Christ, on this side of the resurrection, as we have believed, as we have his very spirit in us, in Christ, not only can we face our own sufferings, but we also find the grace and the power to enter into the suffering of others. 
we find the power and the grace to enter into the spaces where Jesus is currently working. We enter in Christ and also with Christ, and we do it in the way and the love of Christ. I wanna talk to you about the valley of this past week, and I think I can bring some examples into this situation, what it looks like to follow Christ into the valley. Just on a personal note, man, it's been a tough week for our faith family. It's been a difficult week for just us as a church with the loss of life of people that are very near and dear to us. I think about, I mean, Bobby Marlowe and Jenny Boyd and Donna Kitchen. Just in walking with not only them, but walking with their families. Man, this has been a difficult week. It's been a heavy week. And for me as a pastor, Man, I have felt a very heavy burden for people that I love. I, with Bobby Marlowe this week, I, I thought about someone who not only has been kind of like a grandmother to me, but, but she's been like a hero to me. Like, like she's been a person of deep and abiding faith in Christ. She's been not only a you know, church member and a sister and family, but, but she's been a mentor you know, not just to me, she made everybody feel that way, but to so many people. And it's just been such a tough week. It's tough to, to see the, the shadow of death swallow up those that you love, especially when we, we know and believe how Jesus feels about death. We know that he hates death. We know that he's done a work to, to defeat it and, of course, one day destroy it. But even with that great hope, and we do have hope in Christ, my goodness, we, we are sorrowful and celebrate at the same time. That, that is certainly true. But it has still been a heavy week, and the shadow of death has been so evident here. And so I ask you this week when you say, well, what does it look like to enter in with Christ? Man, it means to be with people. It means to be with those who are hurting and suffering. It means to sit with them, listen to them, care for them, pray for them, pray over them, pray with them. It means to take on burdens. I mean, there's just certain stuff, and we can't just turn our head and look the other way. It's been a heavy week for our faith family. Not just for those who have lost, uh, you know, for those that we love that have lost their life, but also I've had conversations with several of our people who are just suffering, who either are just, they're sick, or they're just having some deep struggles. And man, I've felt the valley this week. And if you have been close and connected into community here at ABC, I'm sure you have too. I'm sure you know what that feels like. And, and just to know that to follow Christ means to be with and to bear the burdens of our people. It's to bear the burdens of other people, bringing in the hope of glory, the hope of the gospel. And, you know, and that, that's more of a personal note, but on a public note, just think about what we have seen, I mean, social media doesn't hide much. This week, on a public note, just the evil presence that we see of deep-rooted racism and injustice that's been witnessed over and over again. It's a recurring theme that we find in this world, and we see it so easily by video. The last few weeks, just it's been, it's been occurrence after occurrence. It's been something that has happened for way longer than social media. But for someone like me, sometimes I'm just now seeing 
what others have told me for years. In particular, this week, I'm referring to the murder of George Floyd. There has been an outcry this week from the black community for white Christians to call out what is evil and to stand up for what is right. You know, there's been a call, a a cry out to, man, speak out for what you see, for what you know Christ doesn't agree with. He's completely against. Speak out. And to connect with our passage today, what the world does not need to see is with with a desperate cry to be bold and to confront sin. They don't need to see an arguing church. They don't need to see a church who's apathetic with a head turned the other way from the actual suffering. I'm convinced that when we want to consider what it looks like to follow Christ in something like this injustice with George Floyd, I think being sad isn't enough. I don't think it's enough just to be sad, and here's why. because It's not enough for the church to be sad because it's not enough for Christ. That's why. And so that can mean a lot of different things for you, but it means we must confront things in our personal life and also in the world around us. The evil that we see with George Floyd, listen, it's not new, and it must be uprooted from our systems and uprooted from our personal hearts. I am convinced that time alone will never heal the sin of racism, but I know Christ can I know that Christ ultimately will, but here's the reality is that today when we're waiting on glory to come, we have a responsibility to join Jesus. Being sad isn't enough. It's up to us to listen to people of color, to confront our own personal biases and to work toward equity and toward all people being treated as image bearers of God. That's the kind of work that we're called to do. It's difficult. You know, so for me this week, Honestly, that, that looked like me sitting on the phone to leave messages with council members in Minnesota saying, firing is not enough. That's what that looked like this week. It, it looked like more than just being sad. And I know for so many instances and for so many things, man, the church, man, we must stand up for what God stands up for. And so that's on a public note. And, and here's where I am. Uh, let's not be found arguing when we ought to have been found desperate for the faith that heals and restores. See, what I see in this text is when Jesus calls the disciples to prayer, Matthew is say, telling us in his, in his book that, that he's calling us and calling the disciples to have faith, to faith. And it's a faith that is active. It's a faith that moves. It's a faith that's described in the book of James. To connect with what we've already said today, it's a faith that enters in. It's a faith that bears with. It's a faith that bears burdens. A mustard seed of faith can move mountains. I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. I want us to conclude our time by just considering what it looks like to follow him into the tension. And what I mean is this, is I want you on you know, your couch or wherever you are on your table to consider your personal faith and then also just the tension that exists. And before we do that, it's gonna be real quick and we're gonna run through it fast. So you know, be, be listening quick. 
okay? But, but as you do that, I need you to hear that when we talk about faith, it's not the size of your faith that we're talking about. So we don't wanna focus in on the size of your faith. We wanna focus in on the substance of our faith, that our faith is in. And that's in Christ, the author and the perfecter of our faith. We want to consistently look to Jesus. That's what Mark's pointing us to, to be dependent and desperate upon him. When he talks about prayer, it's talking about don't try to do work outside of me. Come to me, trust me, look to me. And so when I'm talking about your faith and your tension, I'm gonna give some examples that I hope will connect with you of, of the tensions that you may be experiencing. The first one is this, just following Christ with the tension of, I'm gonna call it time and appearance. And what I mean by that is sometimes Christ does not heal. He doesn't restore in the way or in the time that we would expect or desire him to. Like he just doesn't move on our timetable. And I'm gonna make a point that could be really hard to hear. But I think you see it definitely in that you, you for sure see it in this picture, but I also think, or in the story, but I think you also see it just in life and in redemptive history. We see here that in this story, it gets worse before it gets better. Like it gets more painful before there's restored healing, okay? Like it gets worse before it gets better. And we see that with this text. I mean, I, I can't stand to read this and see this boy suffering the way that he is before Jesus raises him up. But that's what he gives us in this picture. And honestly, that's what we see in the way that God works in the world oftentimes. It's not the time that we would have desired, and it's not even the way. Oftentimes it feels like our life and the world and what we see is getting worse before it gets better. But listen, even in that tension, guess what we do? We lean in. We trust him. We believe in him. We know that if he would enter into the valley of the shadow, we know that we can trust him in his perfect timing. We can trust him in the ways that he works. But I bet I can connect with some of you on that. Man, it, it may seem like it's getting worse before it gets better. Know that God's with you. He's for you. He's never against you. Lean into him today. What about the tension of darkness or the tension that exists, you know, in that it's just hard for us to see? Like maybe we know what is to come, okay? We're looking to that glory, but what we're experiencing or what we're understanding or expecting in the now, it's making it difficult for us to see. Like we can't see a good step. There, I wanna call you, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Trust him, follow him, join him, lean into him, pray to him, cry out to him, wrestle with him. We believe, Lord, but help our unbelief. That's our cry. What about the tension of our own personal understanding? Man, I talk to people all the time, and, and this is what I hear. I don't get it. I just don't understand. I just don't see how. And I want you to know that God invites you. The, I mean, the book of Psalms is filled with Psalms that say stuff similar to that. It's okay to not understand. And you don't have to check your brain in at the door. You can come to the Lord with your struggles. You can come to him in the tension. And in fact, it's in that tension that oftentimes I believe we feel and we experience the hug of God. That even when we don't get it, even when we can't see how, 
we know that we can trust him and we can follow him and we can join him and we can cry out, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. The tension of personal feelings. Maybe right now you just don't seem to feel like you wish you did. You don't seem to have the feelings that maybe you used to or that you feel like you ought to. I wanna encourage you in that tension, push into the Lord. Know that he's with you. He came into the valley. He's near you. He's with you. He bears with you and he's borne all of your sin and all of your struggles and all of the evil of this world on himself. He can be trusted even when you can't feel. Cry out to him, I believe, but help my unbelief. The last one, I see it with the Father, and I know this is gonna connect to somebody today, is the tension of seeing other people's pain and suffering. The tension of it being almost like all you are doing is sitting and looking at another person suffer, and how just that can make you feel, and just how vulnerable and how fragile you can feel in those times. And I want you, even then, even when you see, to believe, to trust, to cry out to the Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. Pray, believing God's heart for the one that you know and love that's in pain and that's suffering. And trust that God is with you. He's for you. He's never against you. And he's with them. He's for them. He's never against them. This passage brings so much hope to my heart. It reminds me that he's not only the God of the glory, but he's even the God of the valley. That wherever I am today, he meets me. Wherever you are today, that's where he meets you. Today, we join hands and we cry out, I believe, Lord, but help my unbelief. Pray with me. Father, I pray that you would Meet us exactly in that place today, wherever we are. Lord, that we would know that you're with us and for us and you're never against us. God, I pray that we would like Christ, Lord, that, that your people, Lord, that we would join Jesus in the way that he moves, and in the way that he works, that we would connect our hearts to his, that we would join him in being compassionate. Lord, help us, Lord, not only to understand that you're with us in our suffering, but also that we would have the faith and the strength and the belief in Christ to enter into others' suffering. Lord, we want to be like Christ. Lord, fix our eyes upon him, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Jesus, he endured even the cross. He bore even the shame. And he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we love you so much. We trust you. Lord, we believe, but help us in our unbelief. We pray all these things in the mighty name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Grace and peace to you, church.